So as baskets are making their way around, I'm going to invite you, with no further ado, to turn to John chapter 4. We are back with a vengeance into the gospel of John. And if you're new and you're sort of trying to get a lay of the land and figure out who we are as a church, let me, let me just kind of say a couple of things. There's really two weekly rhythms we commit ourselves to as a church family, kind of two stakes in the ground. And one of those is, is Sunday morning, where we come, we believe that we're to orient ourselves upward, to worship God, to honor him, to open his word, to hear what he has to say to us. So because of that, we preach through books of the Bible. And, and ultimately, it's not about what I think or anyone else thinks. It's about what God has said. And so we think it's a good discipline to preach through books, to preach through passages. And we've been doing that now in the Gospel of John. We took a little break over the summer to, do some, to preach through some of the Psalms, but we are now back in John and will be for, for the coming season. But another rhythm we think is really important is something we call community groups, and you heard Quinn mention those. See, community groups, if we're kind of primarily orienting ourselves upward, okay, here um, on Sunday mornings and, and doing outreach ministries like Quinn was talking about, which we're orienting ourselves outward, community groups are where we re- reorient inward. This is where we have fellowship. It's where we have care. It's where we pray. It's where we apply the truths of what we are learning um, through God's Word in the book of John, and that is life. We believe that is, that is, ju- that is a vital part of the Christian walk and experience. And, and the beginning of the fall season is a great, great opportunity to jump into a community group if you are not in one already. And you can see Pastor Scott, he'll be milling around in the lobby, and he can, he can help serve you in that way. But for this morning, we're in John 4, and you'll notice we have these new sermon books for you, um, guides. You can use these to take notes in the sermon message. You can use them in your personal devotions, and you can also use them in your community groups. They have questions, discussion questions that, we, that are oriented in that way. It's a, it's a, it's a meaty passage this morning, and so, but I am going to ask us to stand as we, as we read it. John 4, and the actual story of the woman at the well goes all the way, actually, almost to the end of the chapter through verse 42, but we're just going to read the first 26 verses here together. So hear the word of the Lord. We'll flash this on the screen for you as well. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth." The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord, right now you are scattering seed. And some seed is is falling on the rock and some seed is falling on the soil and some seed is getting choked off by the worries and anxieties of the world, and Satan is snatching other seed. But Lord, we pray that the seed that you scattered here this morning would find receptive soil, receptive hearts, that it would spring, it would take root, it would bring forth a harvest of righteousness. Lord, we know that this is only possible by the living water, the water that gives life, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, give us that life. Open our eyes, open our ears. Help us to see and hear what you want us to see and hear. We commit this time to you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Guys, it's a a meaty passage, which is why we're going to be camping out here for several weeks, drawing on a whole host of, of themes now, you need to know that, that volumes, tomes even, have been written about this passage, drawing kind of sort of evangelistic lessons, so to speak, on how Jesus does mission, how Jesus does evangelism. And so just as Jesus offers the cup of cold water for a physical need, then he offers this, this points this woman towards her true spiritual need. Others have looked at this passage to, to, to try to understand better how we're to worship, how we're to order our worship. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Now, let me say this. All of those things are important. And in fact, we're going to touch on many of them, some of them this morning. However, we have to remember, Four Oaks, that those aren't the main points of this text. You see, John had been, is writing now 60 years after the events that are depicted in his gospel. And we've talked about this before, but he's very clear in his book the reason that he is writing. The reason that he's written this gospel, John tells us, is so that you would believe. 
that you and I would know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we have life in his name, which means fundamentally for everything else that this passage or this book might have to tell us about what we are to do, this book is not primarily about us. This book is primarily about Jesus and what he has done for us. And so, so John spends a great deal of time in his gospel painting different portrait of, portraits of Jesus. And we saw in chapter 1 how Jesus is the Word who became flesh. We are going to find out soon in John chapter 6 that Jesus is the bread of life. He tells us in John 10 and 11 that he is the resurrection and the life. And here this morning and for these next several weeks, we're going to hear Jesus describe himself as living water. And, and, and as he does so, remember that we are not called to embrace and have faith in sort of a nebulous being, a nebulous God, a nebulous spiritual reality where we kind of create our own, our own spiritual rules, our own spiritual reality, our own spiritual fiction. No, no, John is, is crystal clear to say if, if When God calls us to believe in him, to trust in him, he wants us to believe and trust in him for who he is. And so the most important things that we can learn from this passage is not how to share the gospel better, although those are important. The most important things we can learn from this passage is who Jesus reveals himself to be to us. And so there's three sort of portraits that I want us to, to, to zero in on here in our, in our first go at this passage. And here they are, and they all start with P. And it's so nice for John to alliterate this for us like this, okay? Jesus as pursuer, that's the first portrait. Secondly, Jesus as provider. And this third one is my favorite. I've been waiting a long time to use this in a sermon. Jesus as provocateur. Okay, yes, it 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 took me a little while to come up with that one. But I actually do like that. Not saboteur, provocateur. There's our three Ps. Jesus as pursuer. Let's let's dive in. Verses 3 and 4. It says that Jesus is leaving Judea and he's going up to Galilee. Now, Four Oaks is getting ready to take a Four Oaks Israel trip in, in, in the middle of October. So I've been looking at maps quite a lot lately, trying to orient what's going on in Israel now to how it corresponds to Israel in the Bible and the similarities and, and what was happening where. But if you look on a map, it's pretty clear that Jesus is down in the south near Jerusalem. Remember, he's having this thriving ministry where countless people are coming to him um, to be baptized. And he's in Jerusalem, but he decides he's going to go back with his disciples north to um, Galilee, which is kind of where his home base of, of ministry is for most of his three years there. And, and, and if you look at the map, the shortest route, the quickest route, so to speak, to go from Jerusalem, Judea, up to Galilee in the northern parts of Israel is straight through a place called Samaria. Now, now, if you're not familiar with biblical history, just a brief little drop down here to let you guys know why Samaria is significant. So remember, under King David and King Solomon, the people of Israel had a united kingdom. They were united under, under the reign of one ruler. But after Solomon, the kingdom was divided in two 
over division, rebellion, and the sin of the people. And the kingdom in the south was called Judea. That's where, the, that's where Jerusalem was. That was the two tribes with Jerusalem down in the south. And then the north was a separate state. So it's kind of like one country but two states with different rulers. And that, and that kingdom was called, or that nation was called Israel. Okay, so, so you had Israel in the north, you had Judea in the south, and they were a divided kingdom. Well, around 722 BC, Assyria came and wiped the northern kingdom off the face of the map. They, they scattered the people, they destroyed the temples, they, they, they annihilated the people, they deported most of them, they left some of the poorest of the Israelites in the northern kingdom, but instead they brought, and this was the custom of countries, conquering countries at the time, they brought in their own people to populate old Israel. And they intermarried and they intermingled and they, they, they had sort of a mixed races, they had a, they had a defiled religion Okay, they kind of, this syncretistic sort of, sort of idea of bringing all these things together into sort of this cauldron of, of, compu- of confusion. And so because of that, Jews hated, so did I say that right? Hated Samaritans. They were traitors. They were rebels. They were heretics. They were, they were defiled. You wanted to stay far, far away. And so even though the shortest route to go to the north was through Samaria, many Jews just wouldn't do it. They, they took a wide berth. They traveled up by the coast. Or they traveled on the other way by the mountains. Anything to avoid the hated Samaritans. It's kind of like if, if, you're, if you're an FSU fan and you make the mistake of going to Gainesville this year for that game, okay, and you can just see the nation of defiled Gatorland out there, right? Okay, now this is if you make this mistake, okay? You've got one of two choices, okay? Either you can get your little entourage and you can like go right through the middle of that and in the process get beat up, your car destroyed, and things thrown at you, okay? Or you can take a wide berth around, okay? Can we all agree Gator fans are the absolute worst? Anyway, that's a whole different story. I digress, Okay. This is what it was like with Jews and Samaritans. So, but here we have Jesus, and it says that he goes straight up the middle of the field. So we have to ask, why? Why, first of all, why is Jesus even leaving Jerusalem? He's having an amazing ministry. We heard last week when Pastor Scott preached about this, that, that there were so many people coming to Jesus, they were even deserting John the Baptist Jesus is riding this wave of popularity. Why did he not leave that? Why, why would he leave that? Not only why would he leave that, but why would he choose to go through Samaria to get there? A couple things I think are going on. The text gives us a clue. Look back at verse 2. You see, when, when, when word got to the Pharisees that Jesus was on the rise and John the Baptist was sort of receding, that was a big deal because here's the deal. The Pharisees hated John the Baptist, okay? They hate, there's a lot of hate in the sermon. They hated John the Baptist. You know, when someone greets you by saying, hey, you brood of vipers, what's up? Okay, that usually sets a, a bad tenor. And so John had been calling them out for their defiled religion, their hypocrisy. But as much as they hated John the Baptist, at least his shenanigans were confined to the desert. But not so with Jesus. See, Jesus had already been up in Jerusalem. He'd been on the Temple Mount. He had been clearing the courts. He had been, he had been raising a holy ruckus. And as much as they hated John the Baptist, they despised Jesus. And Jesus knows this. 
And he knows that this, there's this confrontation that's looming. A confrontation, by the way, that he is in control of from start to finish. It's the reason he came to earth to make a direct march to Jerusalem to die for us, for sinners. But guess what? Not yet. That's why we hear over and over and over in the book of John, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And clearly his hour had not yet come. He had things to do, people to save, miracles to work, sermons to preach, men to invest in, women to to transform their lives. And so clearly that's a factor here. But there's also another factor. Look at at verse 4. The language there, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, that can be a geographical reference, like you have to go through here to get to there. But many commentators have noticed that the language communicates something a little bit stronger. The language there communicates something along the lines of a divine prerogative, a a purpose, a mission. And as you as we're going to unfold this conversation, the most, one of the most intimate of conversations in all the Scripture between Jesus and another person, we're going to find out this, this conversation was anything but happenstance. Jesus knows this woman. Jesus knows what's going on in the life of this woman. We see here that this is, this is nothing if it's not purposeful. See, Jesus has a divine appointment to save this woman with living water. And as we get to the end of this passage, at the end of John 4, we're going to find out that his plan actually extends to that whole city. This whole city experiences a revival. Why do you think it is in the book of Acts when Philip, the evangelist, has this thriving ministry? Where? Where was that? Samaria. Because the, the soil had been, had been tilled. And so clearly, there, there's a multiplicity of factors going on here. There's, there's, there's the confrontation with the Pharisees. There's Jesus' imminent death. There, there is this divine appointment with this woman. There's all the, the great work in Galilee to come. So, you have to, so, you, so we say, Pastor Paul, which one is it? Is, is it? is it the mission? Is it this woman? Is it revival? Is it Jerusalem? Is it death? The answer is what? Yes. <laughs> yes. See, that's, that's an important thing to remember about God's activity in your life and in my life. And here it is. Guys, Jesus does not do random. So you may be thinking right now in your life, God is very random. I am very confused. Things are happening. Um, my finances, my marriage, my health. Um, I don't have clarity about what God's doing, where he's leading, what's going on. It seems like this cauldron of, of confusion, this cloud sort of surrounds, surrounds my head. And, and although this isn't the, the primary point of this passage, it's still a very, very important point. Jesus is never not purposeful in your life if you belong to him, never. There's nothing ever random that he does in the life of his people. Even if we don't understand it, even if we can't see it, part of the walk of faith is to entrust ourselves to him and say, God, you, there's never been a time that you haven't existed. So you probably know a little bit better what you're doing than I do. Here's what Piper says about this. 
I love this quote. God is never doing just one thing in what he does with us. Some of you think God's just doing one thing. The one thing I need him to do, he's not doing. Okay? God is never doing just one thing in what he does with us. He is always, I love this, he is always doing thousands of things that we cannot see. He is infinitely wise, and everything he does relates to everything else that he does sooner or later, and that later might be eternity. I think we'll be spending all eternity looking back and saying, oh, that's why, that's why God took my mom early. Oh, that's why we couldn't conceive and have children. Oh, that's, that's why we struggled to find a spouse. Oh, that, that's why I never achieved these dreams that I had. See, he is infinitely wise, and everything he does relates to everything else he does sooner or later. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, all of them, I love this, all of them work together for good. See, Jesus shows himself in this, in this passage as the grand pursuer. And even if you don't un- always understand it, if, even if I don't always understand it, he's always pursuing us. Now, He's clearly pursuing this woman. And we want to take a deep dive into this into the remainder of our time because there's so many, I mean, guys, there is just precious, precious nuggets of truth, gospel truth in this that we we get by understanding how Jesus pursued this woman. Look at verse 9. It's a little insert that John put in there uh, as he's writing. It says that, that the woman had got, the disciples had gone in the city to buy food, and Jesus offers her this drink. And the Samaritan woman, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? See, Jesus is in charge of this exchange from start to finish. He is the grand initiator, okay? This didn't start with a conversation at the well. Where did it start? I'm going up through Samaria. Actually, it started from the foundations of the world, but that's a whole other story, okay? But here... John says something interesting. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, to understand the the extraordinary nature of Jesus' pursuit of this woman, we need to understand what what John is telling us. When the, the word don't have dealings literally means Jews and Samaritans don't use things together. Okay? Literally, this is literally the Greek, Jews and Samaritans don't use the same utensils, okay? They don't share toothbrushes like our kids do, okay? Sorry, that was just a little too much information, right? They don't share, they, 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 it's, it's religious contamination. It's, it's defilement. It's, it's, oh, it's, we would never do that. And we say, that sounds so dumb. Oh, really? Oh, really? We know about this culturally, don't we? Uh, you've heard me talk before about this movie Susan and I saw, just fantastic, called Hidden Figures, this group of African-American women who are brilliant, who work for NASA in the 60s trying to get a, a spaceship to the moon. Um, and one of them is a particularly brilliant mathematician, but obviously she's not recognized as such by many because of this is the age of segregation. This is, this is when America comprised two separate plumbing systems to keep the races separate. Think about that. But there's a poignant point in the movie when she walks up front to pour herself a cup of coffee from the, from the coffee machine, coffee pitcher up front. They all work in a big room like this. And there's a number of people there, dozens of people. And she sees the sign on the coffee pot. 
white pot, white coffee. And then right next to it, a little, just a little sad little coffee pot, colored pot. This one wasn't even hooked up. It wasn't even wasn't even brewing coffee, and it was just this poignant image of just the humiliation and the, the degradation and just how degrading this was and this era was in the life of our country, in the life of this woman. Put yourself in that context now. Fast, you know, rewind 2,000 years. Jesus shows up to, inter, to, to, to intersect with, with quote-unquote, the colored person of his age. But guess what? There's only one coffee pot. There's not two. And Jesus comes up and he asks for a drink. And I I can't emphasize enough what a scandal Jesus' pursuit is of her on so many levels. There's clearly the racial scandal. There's the religious scandal, which we've been talking about. There's just the cultural scandal. Men don't talk to women in public. Certainly not a Samaritan woman. But probably one of the biggest scandals of all, and John, it's almost as if John drew a highlighter with marker to point out the nature of this scandal. This woman is a serial fornicator. Okay, there's only one way you can get divorced biblically in the Old Testament, and that is when someone committed adultery. And so this idea that she's had five husbands and that the person she's now with is not her husband, you, don't, you, just, you can connect the dots here, right? This woman has a deep chasm in her heart that she's attempting to fill with sexual relationships. She clearly has a reputation, and the, re- and the reason we know this is that most often in that culture, women, it would be the women who would draw the water from the well, and they would go in the morning because why? It's the same reason your roofer comes in the morning and not at three in the afternoon, right? Because it's cooler in the morning. But here she is in the, in the, in the heat of the day, all by herself, undoubtedly, because she was that woman. She had that reputation. She was undoubtedly the subject of all gossip, and conversation. Let's not forget, again, in the ancient Mideast culture, to add insult to injury, if you wanted to pick someone up in the, I know that sounds strange, in the Middle Eastern culture, where would you go? The well, okay? Where did Isaac meet his wife? The well, okay? Where did Jacob meet his wife? You kind of get the idea, so, so Jesus sort of carousing around at the well by himself with this woman, and the disciples come back. They're so stunned, they don't know what to say, okay? Do, do, do you see what's going on here? But yet, Jesus pursues. He says, I'd like a drink, please. Totally the opposite gospel spirit that we saw in Charlottesville yesterday where white supremacists from across the country championing racial bigotry, claiming status, privilege, supremacy, just because the color of skin is different. It's a a pronouncement of superiority over others based upon something other than someone's intrinsic worth. Do you see why that is anti-gospel? Do we see why that's demonic? Because Jesus does just the opposite. 
And we are called to do the opposite. But here's the twist. Because it's very easy to tweet and post and all those bad people up in Charlottesville, terrible. All these bad Jews, okay? Who are you in the story? Who am I in the story? See, the reality is, and this is John's point, we are the woman. You are the woman. I am the woman. We are broken, not superior. We are needy, not privileged. We, we have no status other than our own sinful heart. We need a Savior just as much as her. We need a Savior just as much as the people in Charlottesville. And only when we can see clearly who we are are we in a position to receive what only Jesus can give. You see, Jesus is the pursuer. And what he wants to pursue us for is to provide us something we need. Okay, second point. We're going to work through this a little quicker. Look at verse 7. Jesus the provider. Jesus meets this woman, and, and they proceed. And this is kind of just bizarre if you're not in that culture. They proceed to have a conversation about what? Water. Just think about that. Water. Now, here in Tallahassee, this is not so strange. It's mid-August. And what does it mean that everybody is starting to talk about? Come on. Yes, okay, of course. Anything else to talk about? I think not, okay? Players and recruiting and game day. And even if you don't like football, you're talking about it. Because you don't want, you sure as heck don't want to plan something on a home game weekend, right? You don't want to do that. I, my dad always told me the story that he and mom had planned their wedding around the Tennessee football schedule. And I, I, I wanted to go check up on this. And I, so I flagged the schedule down for 1967. I know their anniversary day, September 9th, 1967. And sure enough, off weekend. Okay, there we go. Okay, smart man. It's very smart man. Everything in ancient Israel, guess what, was about water. It was. Water was a big deal because there wasn't a lot of it. But it was in high demand. Farming and drinking and all of those sorts of things. And, and it, it, water was a precious commodity. Now, there were some springs, okay, free-flowing natural springs in the area, but not enough for everyone to access. So people had to do what? They had to dig a well, Wells were uber important. We, we find out in the Old Testament that wars are fought over wells. Seriously, they're, they're fought over wells because water is such a precious commodity. And here we have Jacob's well, which, by the way, you can still see today, which you can see in two months for the low, low price. Come to the Israel church. Anyway, that's a whole different thing. Okay. But here's the problem with wells. Wells are susceptible to mischief, aren't they? You can stop up a well. You can poison a well. Wells can dry up. Wells, wells can be contaminated in a variety of ways. And so when Jesus offers her living water, let's not, let's not forget. It's easy to get down on this woman, but, but, but look here. In the Greek, living water really, literally means what? Springs of water. Because woman, you're drawing water from a well. I can offer you a spring, a spring of water. Not just a well, but a spring that continually brings in fresh water. Water that you don't have to worry about whether it's contaminated or not because it's free-flowing and it's easily accessible. And as a bonus, Jesus says, 
when you drink this living water, you, you won't have any thirst. I mean, it's just, it quenches thirst like that. And she hears this and says, I'll take some of that, right? I'll take some of that water where I don't have to trudge down here to the well every day. I'll take some water that really quenches my thirst. I'll take some water that's part of a spring and that's, and that's free flowing. Surely this is going to make my life easier. Guys, it's not a surprise when we look at the Scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, that, that it's actually the Bible that has a lot of conversations about water. The water is all over the Bible. So here's a couple examples. Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, what? The fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can, what? Hold no water. Remember, John the Baptist is having a discussion with Jesus. Jesus I'm sorry, John the Baptist is, is proclaiming his baptism is one of water, but one is coming after him, Jesus, who will baptize with what? The Holy Spirit. You see, water in the Scriptures is always a picture of life, of renewal. And so we have to ask, what is this living water that Jesus is talking about here? Verse 10, first of all, he says it's a gift. Just a gift. You, you cannot do anything to get it, to earn it. It has to be given to you. And secondly, once receiving it, it continually f- gives you the flow and the power and the strength all the way bubbling up into eternal life. As Jesus makes this clear, and, and, and John is just pointing us the way forward when we get to chapter 7, that the living water is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Listen to John 7, 37 through 39. On the, this is, we'll get there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow what? Rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, it's, it's, it's easy, easier to see on this end of redemptive history what Jesus is talking about. Not so clear for her. Jesus says, woman, you need living water. And what does she say? I don't have a bucket. Literally, I don't have a bucket. What should that remind us of, by the way? Just one chapter previously. See, this man named Nicodemus, which, which on one hand was as different as different can be from this woman. Remember, Nicodemus comes at night. He's rich. He's religious. He's, he's, he's male. He's aristocracy. He's, he's learned. But here this woman is in the, in the broad daylight. She's poor and downtrodden and ignorant and irreligious and immoral. But here's the thing. They're both the same. Nicodemus is like, how can I climb back into my mother's womb? The woman is, how can I, how can I draw that kind of water without, a, without a, a proper utensil? They don't understand. It's just a reminder. No matter who you are, where you come from, your status, your family, your children, your money, your job, your need for grace is exactly the same as everyone else's need for grace. All of us are this, all of us are Nicodemus. All of us are this woman. 
we are blind. We are dead to our sin. Jesus knocks on the door of our heart every day and says, hello, I've got living water. And you're like, but I'm having a great time. Okay. I was about to say drinking Coke Zero, but we're about not to do that anymore. Okay. Like the more you drink a Coke Zero in the heat, the thirstier you get. And that's a lot of us. McGregor says a great thing about this. He said, the soul's deepest thirst is for God himself, who has made us that we can never be satisfied without him. Christ satisfies a man not by banishing, this is important, not by banishing his thirst, which would be to stunt his soul's growth, but by bestowing upon him by the gift of his spirit an inward source of satisfaction, which parentally and spontaneously supplies each recurrent need of refreshment. You're like, English, please. That is English, but modern-day English. Here it is. You don't drink from Jesus once and forever satisfied. You continually drink from Jesus, who offers you the springs of living water. That's why you have thirst. If you did not have thirst, you would not come back to him. You would not know that you need him. Which is why here we see that Jesus is the great provocateur. Last point. See, here's our problem. Here's mankind's problem, by the way. You look out over our culture, we're a thirsty people, are we not? We're a very thirsty people. And we are seeking to put anything, to, 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 to quench that thirst with anything that we can. But we're just unsure what exactly we're thirsty for. So Jesus, as a Nicodemus, as the woman at the well, he has to open our eyes. He has to show us our true need. And how does he do that? He provokes. Look at verse 16 through 18. Jesus says all this, and the woman's like, i got to get out of this conversation. Okay, and Jesus says, okay, woman, go get your husband. Now understand something um, when he asks, when he says this. Jesus is not trying to solicit information. John's already made it clear Jesus knows the heart of all men. (laughs) He knows the deal. It's like when you as parents sit down to ask your kid what happened, and you already know what happened, right? And you're just like, I can't wait to hear what comes out of this, okay? Why? Because it's not just about the behavior. You're wanting to get under the behavior. You're wanting to get at the heart, your, your child's heart in the matter, See, Jesus knew that this woman had been through men like, uh, I mean, a flavor a day. This woman was a serial fornicator. And by the way, no one is a serial fornicator if there are not deep issues within the heart. No one who's addicted to gambling doesn't have serious issues in the heart. No one who's addicted to drugs doesn't have serious issues in the heart. Let me just say this. All of us are addicted to something. We just sanitize it, make it look better. Okay, we stick the phone in our pocket, another another promo for Wednesday night. We, we, We sanitize this in a lot of different ways. Jesus knows this, and he wants to put his finger right on it. And, and, And here's something for us here. Oftentimes, the way that Jesus shows us our need for living water, him, is by making the water that we are drinking just taste terrible. Life just stops working. 
And a lot of us are just spinning our wheels in a variety of ways. And we're like, why am I not happy? Why isn't this working? This woman's like, I'm on man number six. Why am I not satisfied? And Jesus is like, I love you too much to make your soul satisfied with that. I will erect every obstacle. I'll put every barrier in your way so that you'll know that only I can satisfy. Paul Tripp says this, and this is wonderful. When God exposes your sin, I love this, it's not an act of judgment but of rescue. He is producing in you a desire to run to him. The God who works to make your sin heavy on your heart is also the one who's slow to anger, abounds in love, and who delights in forgiveness. God is willing to, I love this, to make us spiritually uncomfortable so that we would go to him and find the rescuing, forgiving grace that only he can give. We're a thirsty people, and we're tempted to question God because life is not aligning when the whole time God is pursuing us by making sure that whatever we have our hand around, that idol, that thing that we think is going to fill that hole, he's like, that is going to continually disappoint you because I want you. That's the most loving thing that Jesus, the living water, can do for us. Jesus is pursuing by provoking so that he can provide you and me what we need most. And that's him. Come drink of this living water for folks. Let's pray.